Welcome to The District, a podcast about politics and culture by the spectator world. My name is Matt Purple, and I'm joined by my colleague, Teresa Mull, and today we're going to be talking about something slightly less political than usual, or maybe not so unpolitical, we'll find out, and that is back to school. Back to school is right around the corner. Here in Virginia, where I live, it's actually already going on because in the South, they tend to start a little bit earlier. Where I grew up in the Northeast, it was almost always after Labor Day, we would go back or just before Labor Day, depending on the year. But uh, the point is, it's it's coming up. And uh, of course, that means parents are going to be getting their kids ready. That means making sure you get them out to the bus stop. That means going down to Staples and buying all the colored pencils and the highlighters. But it also means a lot more. It means revisiting issues that in some ways have been on the back burner throughout the summer, critical race theory in our classrooms, COVID, whether or not students should have to mask up, and the growing frustration that a lot of parents are feeling over their their kids, over their schools. We've seen this at school boards that have erupted with anger as parents have showed up to chew out school board members. And that certainly has mitigated somewhat, but it's still simmering very much right below the surface. So Teresa, why don't we start with the political stuff, just because that's the way to reel people in, and also because these hot-button issues are are very real themselves. What do you see going back to school this season? Do you see it being as uh, rancorous as it was before? I I would say yes and no. I would say for those who are sending their kids back to public school, it will continue to be rancorous. We saw last year those hero parents, I would call them, in Virginia and other places who stood up to the school boards and told them, no, you're not teaching my kid that being white is evil, or you're not teaching them how to masturbate in kindergarten, things like that. And I think I think you will, of course, continue to see that as long as that exists. But you also see something else. I read a study this morning that found that Catholic schools are increasing in popularity as parents' eyes are open to what is going on in these government schools. I also, I worked in education policy for several years and when I was studying this stuff day in and day out, we consistently saw the homeschooling movement growing. And that was even before all the woke stuff kind of erupted over the last year and since COVID. So I think that um, the silver lining of COVID actually was that parents were at home with their kids. They were forced to to teach them sometimes themselves or at least be way more hands-on and involved in their child's education and to see what they were learning and how or what they weren't learning. <laughs> um, so I think I think that's a positive that came out of that. And it really it, it gave parents the incentive to be interested in their kid's school. You know, there used to be a time not that long ago, you could send your child to the local public school, just assume that he was learning, reading, writing, arithmetic, you know, normal civil stuff like, and, and those days are gone and parents are waking up to it. They want to keep their kids innocent. They want to teach them traditional American morals. And yeah, so I think you're going to see a big shift from public schools to alternative schools, whether that be private schools or homeschooling. And I think that's going to be really great for not only our kids, but for our society and generations to come. Yeah, and it's such an interesting trend. And it's been established for quite some time during the pandemic, like you were saying. And we have a tendency in the media to use the Loudoun County School Board here in Virginia as a a microcosm or a bellwether for the, the way the rest of these school fights are going. And on one hand, if you look at Loudoun County, on one hand, you do have some easing up, right? They, they, I think, kicked out their mask requirement in the Loudoun County school system, coincidentally, right after Glenn Youngkin was elected governor. So that shows you which way the wind can be made to blow. They, they said, we're not going to do this anymore. 
On the other hand, they're still stonewalling over the critical race theory stuff. They tried to get the lawsuit that was brought by the state kicked out of court. They were unsuccessful with that. And really, nothing has changed that much, right? I mean, the the same, with one exception, the same people are still on the school board. We have no reason to think they aren't still dedicated to the same policies. And you're still hearing about the same issues, which are these really radical curricula, the, the issue of LGBTQ, really pornographic books that are popping up in libraries, and a general, and this is a a trend that goes back long before CRT ever became a thing, the general diminishment of standards, right? The the, the downfalling of standards, students not being held to the same, not, not being given the same education that they once were. And it's funny because going to the national level now, there's two issues you never hear about with, in relation to the midterm elections. One is the opioid crisis, even though that's vitally important. And the second one is education, right? I mean, we hear plenty about inflation. We're constantly hearing about abortion now because the, the the left is supposed to benefit from that. But we don't really hear as much about education. And yet this was arguably the main driver for Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. So I wonder how much that could end up affecting the midterms too. I think it will increasingly become an issue that not only parents, but just people who care about the course of this country and see what so many of these government schools are doing to our children. It's shocking and it's outrageous whether you have kids or not. So I think that will become more of an issue. I think as you said, it just maybe hasn't been presented to voters very much. You know, it's always like the economy, you know, some of these bigger picture issues. And I think that's because they are more immediate to people, not that education is not, you know, I think it's the most important thing because if you don't educate kids properly, if you corrupt them, if you brainwash them, then you're doomed. You know, what does it matter how much gas costs whenever, you know, people don't know the difference between a man or a woman or don't believe that there is one. (laughs) So I think, yeah, I think that people see they're more immediately affected maybe in their own mind, at least, by how much gas and groceries cost, because that's something that affects them every day. Whereas you send your kid to school, it's an 18-year or you know 12-year process. And so it's a, little, it's a little slower to realize the consequences. And it's more of a long-term kind of a slow burn damage that is equally, if not more, as we said, effective. effective. But it's just something that people kind of brush out of the way. And I don't think they had really realized how bad it was until the woke stuff really came to light, until COVID opened their eyes to what was going on. And the reason that, you know, you talked about these changes not really happening at the school boards, despite all of the uproar over it, is because we know that teachers unions, leaders, and teachers themselves, they're not elected. It's not, they are not held accountable to the same standards as, say, a politician or a private business owner, you know, acts in a ridiculous manner. They won't, they won't be reelected or people won't, won't patronize their business. And so they suffer the consequences of doing the things that parents don't like. But we know that teachers and teacher union leaders don't have to do what parents want. They can do whatever the heck they want. They are immune. They get their paychecks back and forth between liberal, often democratic politicians who make sure they stay in power. You know, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. So that's why the time now more than ever is is right for school choice because <laughs> there's no escaping what's going on in these public schools. They're not going to change. They don't have to. 
And so the only alternative is to is just not to send your kid to a public school. And that's not an option for a lot of parents. A lot of parents have to, both parents have to work. They don't have the option to stay home and homeschool their child. And, and that shouldn't be the only recourse. Uh, you should be able to send your kid to private school, to a charter school, to have to establish a homeschooling co-op, to get your child special tutoring if he or she needs it. Parents need to have options. Kids are extremely diverse. You know, have you ever met a kid who was exactly like another kid? No, they're they're beautiful, unique creatures with unique needs, interests, skills, all these things. And the education system in America should cater to that. And it's not. And I think the more parents are outraged, the more Americans realize how corrupt the public school system has become, the more they're going to demand school choice. And it's sad that it's gotten to this point where things had to get really bad and a lot of kids had to suffer. But, you know, sometimes sometimes things have to get darkest right before the light. So I think we're at that point. It goes back to this interesting question that's being debated on the political right right now, which is, do you stay and reform the institutions or do you abandon them and start your new institutions? And I think what you're seeing is that a lot of parents who may not even necessarily be conservatives are concluding that the public school system is so beyond lost that it's not worth saving and they can't save it even if they tried. The, the special interests and the teachers unions are just too entrenched. And so they're, they're leaving. They're upping and leaving. There's that wave of homeschooling. There's more charter and, and private schools, as you're saying. That This makes the case for school choice, as you wrote in a piece not that long ago. They're just, they're, they're pulling up the tent stakes. And I, I don't, it's very difficult, I think, to, to try to reestablish that trust. And it's really, I don't even think the education interests are allowing themselves to acknowledge this, right? They're just kind of continuing in their own mode the way that they've always been. And to be fair, we're seeing waves of teacher retirements too. I, I know teachers who are just as exhausted over this as everybody else. They don't like, nobody likes being a pawn in the culture war. It's it's tiresome, but this is the the situation that they're in largely thanks to a number of factors, COVID and their unions, certainly. And so they're sick of it and they're out of there as well. And it just, it does make you wonder, are we going to end up as a society with two different education systems? Are we going to end up as a society with just a splintered education system or maybe an education system that that really only exists in the, you know, the the sense of acknowledging it as such? I don't know. It's It's a really interesting and really difficult question. But I think increasingly people feel like the only say that they have over their schools and control is through elections, right? And not always school board elections, although certainly there's that, but also the congressional elections and political elections. And, you know, you were, you were talking before about how people care about education less than inflation, and that's true, right? It, inflation is a very, it's a very close issue. It hits everybody every time they go to the grocery store, every time they go to the gas pump. But education is also much more a much more visceral issue than, say, abortion or gun control or certainly than January 6th, right? The issues that the left is trying to put in play. I think a Republican Party that runs on both the inflation and the education issue is, is going to have some success because these are issues that, that really do matter to people. And, you know, you, you can't just fob them off as being a distraction or a media obsession the way that you can maybe the January 6th committee. Right. And I want to make clear that obviously not all public schools are bad. There's plenty of really good ones that do a good job of educating kids and don't make things political. But there is a growing movement within 
the public school system to implement these extremely damaging curricula and policies. And back to what you were saying about teachers retiring, being sick and exhausted of all this. I have several friends I graduated with from college who became school teachers, many of them at local public schools. And most of them, actually, I think all of them have quit. They quit within like three years. And that is a statistic. I think like 50% of public school teachers quit within three years because it's exhausting because they can't just go into a classroom and teach. They don't, their hands are tied. They can't discipline kids the way they need to, to keep law and order in their classrooms and actually educate children. They have to contend with parents. They have to contend with administration, paperwork, all these things. And it just makes it miserable. You know, a lot of these young people have these, you know, high-minded ideas of I'm going to form the next generation of leaders and I'm going to, you know, connect with these kids and change their lives and be a role model. And you just can't do that in a lot of schools. And maybe it doesn't have anything to do with the woke agenda being pushed by the teachers unions, you know, that there are a handful of players that are really giving the teaching institution a bad name. And that's not the case for most of them, but, but it's enough. And if you don't have any recourse to go around that, then teachers will quit. They'll leave. So I don't want, I don't think that Republicans always or people who are um, looking for alternatives to public school necessarily frame the argument in a way that's the most effective what public school teacher unions like to paint the other the other side's argument as is you're trying to dis- destroy public schools. You're attacking us. You want to take away free education to the neediest children in center cities. You want to destroy that, which is not the case at all. Just because you give someone choice doesn't mean that you're going to destroy the public <laughs> schools themselves. A lot of parents still will choose to send their kids to the public school, but they might also send them somewhere else. And that doesn't mean that teachers' jobs are going to go away. We still need teachers at those private schools, at those charter schools, et cetera. It's just giving them an option. So rather than kind of act defeatist, I like to picture it as kind of like a relationship that you've been in for a while and the other person is not changing his or her ways. And you just, you can see that it's never going to work. They're never going to change. You're never going to get along. So you, you walk away and you're brave and you do your own thing and you stand on your own. And that's what a lot of teacher or a lot of teachers and parents are trying to do and they want to do. And they're doing it because they love their kids and they love their, and they love America. And yeah, so we might be splintered quote unquote, in our education system in the future. But I don't think it's really so much as a splintering. It's more like when you go to the grocery store and there's like a thousand kinds of cereal or ice cream. (laughs) Nobody complains about that. They're not like, oh, you destroyed Cheerios. It's like, no, we introduced Lucky Charms. And that's great too. You know, that's that's how we need to look at it. Bernie Sanders does complain about that. He thinks we have too many deodorant choices and Presumably too many types of cornflakes too, but that's That's true. I mean, it does, it takes up a lot of time when you go grocery shopping, but I'd rather have that than, you know, just, just one kind of deodorant. I don't want to use the same kind of deodorant as Bernie Sanders, just saying, I don't know. Does he use deodorant? There's like a whiff of rigor mortis about that, I think, but yeah, it's, (laughs) I'll take my Irish spring speed stick and be done with you. Thank you very much. I'm glad that I'm glad I have that option, but yeah, no, I, 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 I completely agree. And it, you know, all the teachers quitting, all the frustration over division and, and the students who are not getting the education they should. It reminds me almost of the crisis that we're having in our downtowns right now, where in the name of compassion and in the name of so-called liberalism, we are, um, we're hurting everybody. 
right? The, the poor, the homeless, especially the addicted who are just leaving out on the street because we don't want to arrest them because we're defunding the police, as well as police, as well as downtown business owners. In the case of schools, it's teachers, it's students, it's even administrators who want to do the right thing. It's everybody. Everybody just ends up getting harmed in the name of this ideology that fundamentally doesn't work. And, you know, can we reform? Should we abandon it? It's all, it's interesting questions. And I, we're going to see the way that plays out. And the wokeness is interesting too, I think, because it existed when I was a kid, only we didn't call it wokeness. We called it political incorrectness, which I still use sometimes and which is like a hopelessly dated term now. But what it meant was that I grew up in a place where there were very few Jewish students. I think there was maybe like one Jewish student in the entire grade that I was in, in my public school. But every December was like a two and a half week long celebration of Hanukkah. And it was drilled into our heads that you spelled Hanukkah, you could spell it with a C or with just the H. We learned to spin dreidels. We learned what the Hanukkah, you know, legend, the, the mythology behind Hanukkah was all about. And then, you know, thankfully at the end, there was a little bit of time left over for Christmas, which was the holiday we were all actually going home to celebrate. Right. And again, it, it's a good thing to learn about Hanukkah. Of course it is, but it's there was a a real whiff of like compensation there. You know what I mean? Like we don't have enough Jewish kids. So therefore we need to really indoctrinate our, our kids in this. And that's now given way to, you know, black culture, LGBTQ culture, all the different spectrums that we see that are being taught in, in public schools these days. But I'm almost a little nostalgic for that, right? When it was, we were just emphasizing the Judeo part in Judeo-Christian rather than you know, the, the, the 49 different pronouns that we all have to figure out for ourselves. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember specifically our literature books would always have like a story from like India or, you know, all these multicultural places, which was fine and it was interesting, but it didn't really apply to us. And it was just so obvious that they were like going out of their way to to put this on us and to make it relevant whenever we were like oh, okay well that's nice but it it's it's just unnecessary and it almost makes it worse to call attention to it it's like pointing out like which is of course you know the, a lot of they want to they want to divide us but they're like oh look this person's different like let's point it out in like a very obvious like central pennsylvania small catholic school where like 99% of the people are of the same heritage and we're also catholic and it's just like but did you know that there's then like yeah i don't know it's just it makes it worse and it makes it painful rather than just like meet someone and learn about their culture and learn about different things in a natural way they just they had to force it and even back when we were like 7 8 9 years old we 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 saw that and it was like embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing when I was in, they would list all the Jewish holidays on the calendar. This was another part of the, the multiculturalism back then, Rosh Hashanah and, and Yom Kippur and so on. And, and fair enough, all the best. But I went to a public school rather than a Catholic school. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, I'm, I'm Catholic, but I don't see, you know, the Feast of the Assumption listed on there anywhere. Right or the Immaculate Conception listed on there anywhere. Where, where's my multiculturalism? Where's my slice of this rainbow pie? I, I didn't feel, it didn't seem all that inclusive to me. No, but, it's almost um, like the more obscure your heritage or culture or whatever it may be, the more they have to shine a spotlight on it and like spend a week talking about it. And you're like, okay, well, there's no one like that here. I mean, obviously we respect these people and we care about them and they're equal, but why are we making such a big fuss over something that we will probably never encounter in our lives? And 
yeah, which is... But it's also, it, it's nostalgic and innocent too, I think, to think back to a time when, you know, the most controversial book you were going to find in the library was Judy Bloom, <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> and not, you know, Gay Sex 101 or whatever. I mean, the, the, some of the horrible, you know, tomes that we've seen come out of public school libraries over the past few years. And I mean, there is... Yeah, it was kind of a well-meaning form of multiculturalism, a well-meaning form of political correctness. But there's something that I almost miss about it because it was just so much, it almost seems naive compared to what we had today. Right. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, just like learning about like the fun cake that they make in India for their holiday is like, yeah, it was a little forced. It was a little much. They were trying kind of hard to be inclusive of other nationalities. But compared to what we have going on today, like I would, I would go back to second grade and learn how to make that cake in a second. <laughs> I would yeah. too. I know. I kind of, I'm kind of getting hungry yeah. now actually just hearing you talk about it. But yeah, I think the thing that I don't, I don't actually miss those days. I don't actually miss my, my elementary school days at all, actually, because I grew up in New England and around me all the time were these beautiful fall leaves, right? Like September, October is a much fuller fall than you get down here in Virginia. And I mean, I look back on, on pictures of it now and I just, you know, lament the fact that I never really appreciated this enough. But you never enjoyed fall because you were always from like mid-August onward. Remember, you were always just dreading going back to school. And then the culture shock of being in the classroom and, uh, you know, a new classroom and, and meeting new people. And September was just and even part of October, which just kind of felt a little bit wasted because you were still accustoming yourself. And yeah, I'm glad not that I like love working year round or anything, but I'd almost appreciate that. And I don't miss back to school at all. It was always... And I see the back to school signs in the grocery store and staples and stuff. They start popping up at PTSD. like the end of July. I'm just like, like, oh uh... gosh, I was like, get me out of here. I'm like, stop, drop and roll. I'm like, no. Flashbacks. I know. I'm glad you say that because a lot of kids that I ask nowadays, I'm like, oh, you're getting ready to go back to school. They're like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, are you dreading it? They're like, no, I love school. I'm like, really? I don't know if they're brainwashing what? them or because school today, public schools are so – they play games and they learn about diversity and they, like, do things that aren't – like, they're not sitting there memorizing their times tables. Maybe school is more enjoyable, quote-unquote, because they're not learning anything. I'm like, wait, what? You don't – you're not dreading getting up in the morning and, like, going to school and being in prison all day? I'm like, okay. Maybe it's, like, politically incorrect to say you hate going to school. I think – I think that might be part of it. I'm serious because I'm like, I always dreaded school and I still do. I actually remember the first time, the first summer I graduated after college and, you know, you have like three months off. That's what you do. And it was the first summer and I had a job and I was like, wait, I don't get to just like sleep till noon every day for three months and like do whatever the heck I want and stay up late and like have no responsibility. It was really shocking and jarring. So yeah, yeah I know what you mean about the seasons. They have a really different context whenever you're an adult than when you're a kid. <laughs> I know. And they, well, and they blend together more. And the flip side of that is that now summer is just this, you know, long doldrums to kind of get over with at the end of it anyway. Mm-hmm. But you remember those, those long August days growing up when you would just, you would spend the afternoons playing outside and you'd go ride your bike or play baseball or, you know, invent a new sport, Calvin and Hobbes style. And it was just, I'm sounding like the Pepperidge Farm guy right now. I know. I'm like, you sound like Bernie Sanders. Those, Jeez, how old are you? <laughs> remember those long New England summers? Um, but you, you would just, you know, those days felt endless and just wonderful. And there was that lack of stress of stuff to do. And yeah, I completely agree with you. I don't know. I don't know who the hell wants to go back to school. That seems like a weird impulse to me. I remember staying up 
playing wiffle ball in my parents' yard until nine and it was still light enough out. We're like, we can stay till nine. And that was like the epitome of summer was like the late, the longer the days went and the later you could stay outside playing. And yeah. Thanks a lot, Matt. Well, you just made me really depressed. Never getting that I back. Know, I'm so sad. <laughs> I'm so sad right now, but, and then also too, we didn't have to show up at the school board meetings and, you know, shouted our, our elected officials all the time. It, you know, it did, it felt like a better day. Exactly. At least whenever the school season started or the school year started, you could come home from school, have a snack. Your mom could make you dinner, ask you about your day. You could do your homework and you have that nice routine. Now there's like three days a week, your parents like, sorry, kiddo, I have to, you know, microwave your dinner because mom and I have to go to the you got got a sitter got to go to the school board meeting and fight with your administrators and <laughs> get hauled off to jail and be called a domestic terrorist see you later hun like those are innocent times and we're not that they old were. it wasn't that long ago like what happened I've never once been arrested by Merrick Garland and I almost feel like I'm you know the the new generation has something up on me but yeah, it's, and this is one thing that you kept hearing from the Loudon parents, right? Is that this is exhausting. Like they have jobs, they have three or four kids to take care of. I'm a parent now myself, so I fully understand this. You don't have time to go down and try to run your own school. You just right. don't. That's not something that you have the bandwidth for at all. You rely on other people to, to do that. And thankfully, my young son is at a school right now where he's very well taken care of. But I can't imagine if I was also having to involve myself too deeply in that too. And yeah, I mean, just kind of looping back to what we were saying before, do you think that's not going to be an issue in the election? Do you think that people aren't still upset about that? They they definitely are. And it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I think if Republicans were smart or, you know, really aware of what people wanted beyond the economy, they would seize on this. And I said that in my article, you know, learned from the example of Glenn Youngkin. I think that kind of came out of nowhere. He's like, yeah, I'm going to run an education. Everyone was like, what? And then it worked really well. And it's like, oh, yeah, actually, people do care about this when you present it to them. One more thing I wanted to add, harping on school choice. We talk about all the diversity and inclusion stuff that is part of the woke, the woke agenda and how you and I we're forced to read about, you know, some multicultural stuff that didn't really pertain to us, but it was still, it was fun to learn. You know, it wasn't necessarily harmful, but school choice makes, makes the classroom way more diverse. So if you think about it, if you have to go to the public school that is in your zip code, you're going to get all the kids from the center city who tend to be minority and of a certain social class all going to the same school. But you have school choice. Suddenly, the kid who lives in violent downtown Chicago has a chance to travel 30 minutes away from that, be in a classroom with kids from maybe a little more economically advantageous, different backgrounds. They get to meet this other kid who came from Center City, learn about his customs, his way of life, his background. And diversity and learning about all these multicultural stuff will happen naturally. You don't have to force it. You can learn it from people who are living it. And it's a beautiful thing. So for all their uh, preaching about being diverse and multicultural, if you actually had choice, that would happen all on its own. And you wouldn't have to write really big, colorful, expensive textbooks about it. The deadening uniformity of multiculturalism. I think you're, I think you're right. And we'll leave it there. Thank you for listening to this episode of The District. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Spectator World is the U.S. edition of the world's oldest magazine. To read more on similar subjects, visit spectatorworld.com.